comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, and it's on page 309 of your pew Bibles. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. <clears throat> they destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she was sent back. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and, jo and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace and all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening... Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will struck, be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account for the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobeshesh? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebesh? Why did you get so close to the wall? 
If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here ends our reading. Well, that's a cheery reading. Glad you made it to church, aren't you? Let me start by praying for us. Father, we do thank you we could be here. And Lord, through this fascinating but confronting story I pray that you'd speak to us all help us to understand ourselves truly and to understand your grace and forgiveness even more in Jesus name amen let me start by asking us a question this morning as we come to this very famous story of David and Bathsheba Uh, why do we come to church each week and look at different parts of scripture It's a good question to ask ourselves. Uh, We spend a fair amount of time studying the Bible, having it read to us, listening to one of us up here, explaining it. We do it during the week. And we've just had read, really, a very infamous and confronting story, David and Bathsheba. Why do it? Is the Bible just a collection of stories that are inspirational on occasions Uh, and we saw that last week with the story of David and Mephibosheth, an incredible story of inspiration about kindness but there's also confronting stories here and ones you go, why are we reading that, why are we learning from that story? Well the Bible is a book of stories in many ways, there are letters but so much of it are stories that we look at each week and I want to put it this way, Um, while the Bible is a book of many books, it's one book And it's a book with many stories, but there's actually one overarching story that every other story is about. There's one story that starts in Genesis with a creation, with a garden, with a rebellion, with a fall, that centers on the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation that he brings to the world. And it finishes in a new world, a new creation. And this is the overarching story of the Bible. There's one story in the Bible, but yet there's all sorts of little stories that make up the Bible. And each one of these stories, I want to say to you, actually tells us something about the story. The overarching story, the main story, which is the story of redemption in the Lord Jesus. And this week, as we look at this story, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as you hear this story, because it's just another story that gives us an insight into the story, the story about Jesus and our need of redemption. 
we come to 2 Samuel's most famous story. 1 and 2 Samuel have two famous stories. 1 Samuel, the great famous story is David and Goliath. 2 Samuel, the famous story is David and Bathsheba. Let me say, one of those two stories is in every children's Bible. Which one is it? It's Goliath. One of those two stories is, I'm pretty confident, I haven't read every children's Bible, but I've never seen it, David and Bathsheba. It's not in any of the stories. And it's interesting, the story of David is actually told twice in the Old Testament, here in 1 and 2 Samuel, second times in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Do you know what's interesting? In 1 and 2 Chronicles, it's rubbed out. Because you get an idealised picture of David. Chronicles is actually the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they'd rather forget the story we're looking at. Now up until this point in the story of 2 Samuel, David has conquered with God's strength. He's confronted external armies of enormous strength and power and he's won. And yet we come here and the armies, the enemies, the conniving, none of that could undo him. He was God's man, inspired by God's spirit, strengthened by the spirit of God. But he's brought undone here, not by some external force, some external army, but he's brought undone by himself, his own weakness. Uh, David, in the end, was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem were no protection against his own deep flaws. Today's a difficult story to think about if you want to ponder it properly, because it confronts you not just with David, it actually confronts us with ourselves, our own weaknesses. And the story is here not to simply help you avoid having a midlife crisis, which for all intensive purposes appears to be what's happening with David. And it's not simply to help you avoid committing adultery, which he does and other things spectacularly. It's to teach us where we are, who we are and our fatal flaws. It helps us understand our part in the big story of the Bible. Well, what I want to do is just go through this story and walk slowly through it. So if you've got your Bibles there, do open up. We're at page 309. Your kingdom come, David and Bathsheba. Sorry, I had to wake up. And the first thing that happens in this story is what I want to call the wake up. When you read 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is in mourning. Rightly so, there's a real sense of uh, honour that you see in his life for his enemy. He was God's anointed, so David mourns him. Uh, Saul also, his dear friend Jonathan, who died. Chapter 2, he's become king over Judah. Chapter 5, he's now king over everyone in Israel. Uh, chapter 6, he captures the great, un, if I can say, uh, uncatchable city, goes into Jerusalem, makes it God's place. Chapter 7, he's promised an eternal dynasty in his name. We remember David because from that point on, David's name is synonymous uh, with an eternal kingdom of God. Chapter 8 and 10, he is ruling justly and righteously. No one can, if I can say, stand against him and his armies. In chapter 9, uh, we see what he does with his power is this incredible grace and kindness to the grandson of his former enemy, 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 Mephibosheth. And so as you stand on the precipice of chapter 11, uh, I couldn't help but think of the great statue of David. And I've been there to Florence, I've been in the museum, and I sat there for half an hour just staring in wonderment at this incredible, if I can say, artistic work that really depicts the excellence, the magnificence of David. 
It's a stunning piece, if I can say, of human artistry. Let me say, this sculpture must have been written before the sculptor read about chapter 11. Let's read. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. What we see here is it's springtime. And so the winter chill and the winter snows have gone and war has resumed. It's back to business, you could say. And typically what would happen is the uh, battles of the previous period were taken up again. Winter's over, the kings go out to war. David would typically go out to war with his trusted general Joab, but for this occasion he doesn't. Now, that's not the only time he didn't go out to war, but let me say it was an unusual thing that he didn't go out. And when you read in the original language, and I'm going to make a couple of comments about the Hebrew because it's, it's a very deliberately written narrative here. There's one phrase that jumps off the page in this first verse, but David remained in Jerusalem. The emphasis there by the writer is, but... But David remained in Jerusalem. Was he tired of battle? Uh, Was it a midlife crisis? Were there political happenings and machinations in Jerusalem that he needed to deal with? We're not told, and so we don't know. But what follows is so stunning in this chapter that it leads to the monumentous fall of literally one of the greatest ones in God's kingdom. Uh, When the kings went off to war... David stayed home and that should have been the wake-up call to David that there was something wrong he should have been on high alert but he wasn't and so the wake-up leads to the hook-up now one of my favorite railways is the scenic railway of Katoomba who's been on it yeah I know a few people went up there this week I bumped into them on Friday uh, and they were going for their first trip the decline on the railway is 52 degrees. It's over the 45 degree mark. It is the steepest railway in the world. And the thing I love about it is once you start going down, you know you're not going to come back. It's just this downhill descent of terror and fear that is wonderful and gets the adrenaline pumping. It's steep. And I say that because it's much like the slide of King David here in the next 16 verses. Once it starts, it just does not stop. And it's this incredibly steep tumble down the slope. Let me read from verse 2. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now one of the big questions that people ask is this, why would Bathsheba bathe naked on the roof? I'm assuming naked because she's bathing. Let me ask the question to you. Just have a look at your Bibles. Who's on the rooftop? Just have a look in your Bibles. Who's on the rooftop? It's not Bathsheba. It's David. He's the one on the rooftop. It's interesting in terms of kind of folklore regarding this story. uh, Questions have been raised about Bathsheba. Was she a seductress? Was she out there flaunting her wares, so to speak, to the king? Actually, the answer is no. Uh, She's not complicit, I don't think, in any way. There's no consent, I think, in any way. 
For reasons I'll explain, she could well have been the first person to have hashtagged me too in the Old Testament. She would have been very well entitled to. Look at the text. David is the one on the bed. David is the one on the roof. David is the one staring, leering. The woman was very beautiful. Now, it's interesting, in house architecture of that day, plumbing didn't exist in the way that came into play with the Roman Empire. It's very reasonable to assume here and to believe that her place of bathing was otherwise private, could well have been indoors. And what you may not realise is Uriah the Hittite was actually one of David's most trusted lieutenants in the army probably well known to him when you get to chapter 23 he's listed as one of the mighty men of David one of the elite forces and here is David on the rooftop staring at Bathsheba captivated by her beauty the sin here was not Bathsheba's bathing she was not trying to provoke the king is my understanding the problem entirely is David looking and wanting The text gives us no hint that she's acting inappropriately or provocatively and the thing with the way Hebrew narrative works is it doesn't tell you explicitly, it gives you hints in the way the narrative unfolds. And in fact the opposite is what you see unfold in the text in verse 4, we're told that the reason she's bathing is because she wants to cleanse herself basically after her period and that was a requirement of the law for her to be close to God. And so what you see is a woman wanting to be close to God viewed by a man walking away from God. That's the movement of the narrative. The fact that a woman is attractive is no justification for any wrong behaviour by a man. And what's interesting is Bathsheba only has two words in the entire narrative. I'm pregnant and I don't suspect there was any joy when she announced that news to David this story is entirely about David and his almighty fall from grace as he was the one who was king and had absolute power and was entirely responsible for what took place it appears that David is bored that he's loitering And he finds himself on a nice spring evening looking at this beautiful woman and is aroused by her beauty and it needs to be said he could have stopped it right there. He could have just said actually I'm going to pray for that woman and her marriage. Let me just say to anyone here tonight if you are tempted in any way relationally uh, one of the hints that I would give you one of the advices I've received is start praying for the person and their godliness, and their marriage, and their well-being. And if they're single, pray they get married. If they're not a Christian, pray they come to Christ. It's amazing how your view of them will change. Verse 4, Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. In other words, that's, that's the hint in the text 
she's the one who was trying to get close to God. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. The text is not salacious in any way, shape or form. It's actually rather cold and clinical. She came to him, he slept with her. She went home, she got pregnant, she told him the news. I say that because it's not a moment that the Bible is rejoicing in. But what we see next is the spin doctor starts to work. The cover-up. David thinks, okay, you're pregnant. Let's get her husband to come back and have some well-earned rest. And by the way, he could sleep with her and it'll all be covered up because no one will think twice. It's only about a six-week break. So David sent word to Jacob. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Jacob sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. And you know what those words mean. Go home, wash your feet. It's a euphemism for have a nice time with your wife, make love. Go and cover up what I've done. I remember reading that a common spin technique, often employed in politics, governments do it, councils, involves the delay of releasing bad news so it can be hidden in the shadow of bigger events. And you'll see this happen. Uh, When the government wants to get bad news out, they'll often release it on occasions when there's some overarching news that kind of dominates the news cycle. I don't know if you're familiar with the very famous reference of when this practice occurred, when the US government press officer, Joe Moore, she worked for the transport minister, half an hour after 9-11 and the terrorist attack occurred in New York City, she emailed a colleague and said, it's now a very good day to get out anything we want to bury. True story. That email was leaked subsequently and subsequently she had to resign. Now it's a very good day to get anything out we want to bury. David wants a cover-up, just like Joe Moore was assisting on that day. But the cover-up led to the mess-up. You see, Uriah was too honourable, he's too godly. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked her, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home, man? Uriah said to David, well, master, the the ark and Israel, Judah, they're staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I on earth go to the house to eat, drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I'm not going to do such a thing. Do you know what Uriah's name means? No, you probably don't, I'm sure. (laughs) Not familiar with Hebrew. It means Yahweh is my light. Interesting, isn't it? Do you know what he refers to? The ark. Do you know what's inside the ark? It's the Ten Commandments, which David is ripping up one by one. Do you see the great irony that's happening here? Uriah is going, how on earth can I, when the ark is out there, God's commands to us, go home and make love with my wife when they're fighting the battle? He won't do it. He's too honourable. Well, the mess up leads to the booze up. 
at David's invitation, verse 13, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. The text is very explicit here. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. You see, if the offer of sex doesn't work, well, let's try sex and alcohol. That typically is a pretty powerful cocktail, isn't it? Well, at least that's what David thought. But again, Uriah is too honourable. And the great irony is this. The one who was named Yahweh is my light seeks to keep walking in that light as David walks further into the darkness. And so after the wake-up and the hook-up and the cover-up and the mess-up and the booze-up, tragically we get the shoot-up. Let me read just the pertinent verses 14 and 24. In the morning... David wrote a letter. You can imagine he's furious. Who on earth does he think he is that he could defy my plans? And he sent it to Uriah, sent it with Uriah, which is the great irony that Uriah carries his death sentence sealed with wax to his boss, unaware of it. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line when the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. This is one of his mighty men, his trusted lieutenants, his crack soldiers. And what we read at the end is the news, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now such arrangements happen in our world, don't they? People do have deaths that are arranged and when we hear about them, they usually don't surprise us. I'll give you one as an example. It's the death of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel in October 1944. Everything has been arranged in Berlin, Rommel was told. Rommel had returned home from Germany. He'd been hit uh, by a bomb. He was not fatally wounded, but he was very, very badly wounded. And so he returned home. And my understanding of history is he was dismayed at the war efforts where things were up to but also appalled by the death camps that he'd found out about and he was implicated in a plot to kill Hitler because of his services to Fuhrer in North Africa when the Fuhrer found out that his greatest general and field marshal was involved in the assassination attempt rather than just kill him the others were just exterminated he was given a gentler option of taking poison owing to his outstanding services to Germany in the war if he went quietly then his family would be granted a pension should he not consent who knows what might have happened to his wife and family after he was eliminated and that was the practice of that period with Hitler what he had to do was to drive off with two generals who'd come to collect him he literally had a minute to speak to his son and tell him what was happening. You can read his son's recollection, just Google it and you'll find it. And he would go in the car with two generals, he would take the poison, it would kill him in seconds. And within 15 minutes, his wife would receive a phone call to say that he died of a cerebral embolism because of his war wounds. It was a lie, it had all been arranged. At the state funeral, Hitler wired Frau Rommel 
himself asking her to accept my serious sincerest sympathy for the heavy loss you've suffered. Herman Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, joined in the act as well. He assured her that the fact that your husband has died a hero's death as a result of his wounds has deeply touched me. But everything had been arranged. Now, you're not shocked about this, are you? It's Nazi Germany. (laughs) But we're talking about the king of Israel. The greatest one in all the Old Testament. And it had all been arranged. Well, let's move to my last point, the heads up. Because that's not the end of the story, is it? Uh, When I was in my last place in Wollongong, I remember talking to a used car salesman. And he was one of the first families to come to Christ that I had involvement with. His name was Alan. And he was a lovely guy and I was intrigued to talk to a used car salesman because typically we view them right down the bottom of the social standing. Let me say, they're great people. Had a great amount of time for Alan and all the car salesmen I know. They've all been wonderful people. And I remember asking him about his sales techniques. And he said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, Bruce, it's very simple. He who speaks last wins. He who speaks last wins. And that was his technique. He would never speak first in a negotiation. He would wait for the other person to speak. And he said, it's amazing what happens when people are under pressure and they start speaking. He said, you can get some incredible deals. He said, the one who speaks last wins. Try it someday. You can get some interesting results. Ask yourself the question now. Who speaks last here in this story? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Let's see how things finish. Look at verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. Come on. The sword devours one as well as another. It's just war. This happens. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But that's not the end of the story, is it? There's one more line. The story ends this way, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I want to show you how the original language of Hebrew actually finishes the story. Because what you've got here really is God's verdict on what's happened. The heads up for the reader. David's literal words are, don't let this be evil in your eyes. That's what he says to his king, to his general, Joab. Joab, it's part of war. Don't, this is not an evil. Come on. It happens. Get over it. And then you hear this chilling conclusion. It literally says, but the thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a direct play on words here that the narrator is using. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's the moral to the story? Well, let me ask you, what do you think the big lesson is for us today? I think the easy thing to say is it's a warning about adultery or even further about breaking God's law. 
And in some ways it is. It makes you stop and realise that one of the problems we have is we don't play the movie out to the end. And you think, what would have happened to David if he played the movie out to the end and saw what the ending was going to be? You'd think he wouldn't do it, would he? And so often, though, we just get in situations and we don't think of the consequences. How does this movie end that I'm currently in? How much destruction will I wreak and cause? And there's no doubt that adultery wrecks people's lives and causes enormous damage. And it's absolutely wrong without talking about murder, which was the end result here. And if I can say this gently, if you're here today and you're being tempted to be unfaithful in your relationship, what you need to do is do two things. You need to actually play the movie out to the end and go, where will this end? And let me just say, my experience is it never ends well. It's always a disaster. You can recover from it, but at enormous cost. And I want to say to everyone here, Never utter these words, I could never do that. Please don't ever think that. Because you see, there's a deeper story here that is part of the story. It's the story of humanity. Because this story is about really the greatest one in Israel. And I'm sure he thought to himself, I could never do that. Now it's interesting, um, when David is confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, and that happens in the next chapter, and it's worth reading, uh, David is repentant, and he writes to reflect on what happens. Do you know what he writes? The interesting thing is he does not write, the, if I can say, the warning about adultery that you find in Scripture. Do you know who writes that? There's a deep irony about this. Do you know who writes the warning about don't commit adultery? It's Bathsheba's son, Solomon. Now what David writes about is actually a reflection of his own sin. And you see, this story is part of the deeper and the biggest story of humanity that all of us are fatally flawed. And the thing I want us to understand this morning is we are fatally flawed. And we should never say, I could never do that. And I think it's one of the most difficult things to come to grips with is the depth of our brokenness. Because we want to cover it up, we want to think well of ourselves, and I understand that. But there's a fatal flaw in us that is deep and permanent and it's what we call sin. And until we come to grips with that, we'll never understand the Saviour and what He's done for us. And I want to leave you with this thought. We are more broken and sinful than we can ever understand is what this story tells us. But I also want to say that's not the end of the story. The end of the overarching story is this. There is a saviour whose name is Jesus who loves you more and his grace is more powerful and efficient than you will ever comprehend. 
and his name is Jesus. And so as we stop and ponder this story, know these two great truths. We are more broken than we'll ever imagine. But there is a saviour whose love for us is more profound and more effective than we'll ever comprehend. And that is what we're going to celebrate now. I'm going to pass over to Scott. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, We are going to share...